Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Good morning again. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Moving on to chapter 6. Starting in verse 1. This morning's title is Dying for the Right Reason. Dying for the right reason. And sometimes we know that people die for the right reasons. We celebrate the heroes of the great wars who have given their lives, and they might have saved their buddies in battle. Um, Sometimes we question the necessity of death. It's not a subject that we normally like to talk about. But it is a necessary thing. Um, Sometime back in New York, there was um, a family, they were working in a fast food restaurant and their lives were required of them because of greed, envy, jealousy, sin in the life of someone else. And we wonder, why should a person have to die for that? And this morning I want us to look into God's Word and I want us to see that Paul the Apostle tells us that there is another reason that we should die. And it's a death that we should accept willingly. So let's go to chapter, or chapter 6 verse 1. It says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means... How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life." For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ... We believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Now as we go back and we look at this passage of scripture, let me give you a little background again of what Paul has been writing up to this point. Now, you recognize that his letter here um, is for the Christian. And a lot of people say, well, this is for the unbeliever. No, this is is for the Christian. Um, and, And the Christians in Rome specifically. And a lot of times we fail to understand that Paul's writings were to believers. Paul's writings were to explain the great truths of God and to explain the great truths of his glory and his mercy 
to believers. But to what purpose? We know that purpose, right? What is the Great Commission? Tell the world. That was his purpose. He was, his purpose was to tell the Christians about God's grace and mercy so that they too could tell others about his great grace and mercy. That would lead me to think that maybe something has happened that we don't fully understand here. God has done such a great work in our life that we cannot begin to fathom the works that he has done for us. So, Paul goes to great lengths here to ensure that believers understand. First of all, when we go into battle, what do we need to know most of all? We need to know the enemy. We need to know the enemy. Why is it essential for us to understand what God has done for us? And why is it important for us to understand what Jesus has done in our life? Simply this, that we might go and share that information with those who don't know Jesus. That's the purpose. With the Holy Spirit of God living in our hearts, giving us that direction and giving us that guidance, then he can guide us to that truth. He guides us to that understanding that not everyone has the Holy Spirit indwelling with them. That's why God has called us, so that we could share that with those individuals. And some folks have not accepted Jesus as their Savior, and they don't understand. How could they understand? They don't know. It is our job to inform them. It is our job to allow God through us to inform them. So when we begin to understand the great things that Jesus did for us, that will cause us to want to live our lives in such a way that it glorifies him. And when we live our life in a manner that glorifies God, people will begin to notice. And when people see something different in us, than the rest of the world has to offer, it makes them curious. What's different about you? What's so great about your life? We're all living in misery. What's so great about your life? It's the example of God in our lives. Now, some people may stop and laugh it off, and they may say there is not a difference between Christians and everyone else. But they're not always wrong, because a lot of us live our lives that way. Where they don't know Christ is in our lives by the way we live, by the way we talk, by the way we operate day to day. But when we realize the great work that God has done for us, that will cause us to live our life in a way that brings glory to him. And people will take notice. But Paul has been teaching the Romans about the great grace of God. In chapter 5, we talked about, or I'm sorry, Paul talked about, and he explained to them that the death came into this world by the death of one man. Because of the sin of Adam, we are all sinful by nature. It is inherited, as it were. But Paul goes on to say that because of the death of one man, Jesus Christ, sin can be forgiven for all people. In fact, in chapter 5, we get that great verse of Scripture that we quote so often. When Paul said, but when sin abounded, grace did much more abound. We have that promise. We can live by that promise. We can live in that promise. 
Paul is praising God by saying that because of the depth of sin, it helps us to recognize the greatness of the grace that God has. Why do we go through situations like I talked about last week? Why are obstacles put in our way? It's so that God can show off. I know that sounds haughty, but you know what? God loves to show off. And he likes to show off through us. Paul also knows that by saying that he is raising some questions to others who might say that they once get saved, you can do anything you want. We hear that a lot, don't we? Oh, you've been saved, so you can go on living your sinful life, and then when the time comes, you can repent. Is that what he's saying here? You see, one of the problems that we have as Southern Baptists is that when we try to teach the doctrine of eternal security, that's when people misunderstand us. That's when they misunderstand us. We teach the eternal security of the believer. Once you accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he seals you. The scripture says, until the day of redemption. In the book of John, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. In the very first scripture that we memorize as children in John 3, 16, it tells us that we can receive everlasting life. And many accuse those who teach this or those who preach this as being hypocrites. Why? Because they say we're buying into a cheap salvation that frees us to sin and do it as much as we want to. Once you've been saved, it doesn't matter what you do. That's the prevailing thought. And it's a prevailing thought of many Christians today. That once you're saved, it doesn't matter what I do. I can live the way I want. I know that I'm saved. God says so right here. But that's the prevailing thought that we need to get away from. Because how can anyone see Christ in us when Christ is not in us? Now Paul is talking about death. He is talking about the fact of death. And he's talking about the reality of death. And he's explaining to the believers at Rome that there's a right kind of death. And there's a good reason for dying. And as contradictory as it sounds, he is saying that the only reason for dying is so that we may live. We need to die so that we can live. He raises this question, and in so doing, he shows us the great enemy of our faith. He says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? There are two things that Paul is talking about in that verse. First of all, he's talking about grace. He's talking about the free will offering that God outpours. He's talking about something that is extended to someone who does not deserve it. And he is also talking about sin itself. It should be relatively easy for us to determine which one of these is our enemy. It should be easy for us to recognize that sin is our great enemy. That is, sin that separates us from God. From the time that man and woman walked in the garden together with God, it was sin that came in. 
and separated them. Many times we want to accuse Satan for this separation, but let's be perfectly honest here. Adam and Eve had the choice of whether to sin or whether not to. This was not Satan's doing. This was their doing. But since that time, since we became sinful creatures, we don't have that choice anymore. We are sinful by nature, and guess what? We will sin. We will sin. And that's why sin is our great enemy. Sin is what separates us from God. Sin is what prevents us from being welcomed into the presence of God. Sin is what hinders us from being obedient to God. And Paul is talking about that sin here. Many times we're confused about sin and whether uh, what sin really is, what constitutes a sin. And we think that's something that offends us or something that appalls us. That is the culture today. Anything that offends you must be a sin. You need to change your ways. You need to adapt to my lifestyle. That's the, is that not true? For example, it is easy for us to look at the headlines and read about the shootings that have been happening, right? Many people die, some needlessly. But it's happening, right? And it's an atrocity. It's inexcusable. That's a sin. That also offends us. So it is, is it the people that offend us or is it the sin that offends us? And you see, so many times we live our lives doing things that we don't even recognize and don't acknowledge as sin. We are at best, we are indifferent to those that we are around. We are casual in our worship. We are careless in our witness. But those don't offend us. So, obviously those aren't sin, right? Wrong. They are sin. Just because something does not offend us does not mean that it is not a sin. Sin is not that which offends us. Sin is not which appalls us. Sin is that which offends God. Has nothing to do with us. Sin has everything to do about our disobedience to God. The shame of it is, is we are, when we do that, <laughs> we could line the walls with the list of sins that a person could commit, and then we could probably go back with a check mark and check off the ones that we have committed. And because of that, we have to rate sin and we have to categorize sin and, and great sins and little sins, and it goes on and on. Why even to our children we talk about lies and little white lies. You ever told your children that? Don't tell lies, but don't even tell little white lies. We have categorized sin. But nothing in God's word teaches us that God categorizes sin. So now we would make our list and we would say that obviously murder is a great sin. And in the Ten Commandments, God said, Thou shalt not kill. Obviously, adultery would be a great sin. And in the Ten Commandments, God said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But what about what we would call 
lesser sins? What about what we would call those little white lies? What about laying out of church? Not showing up. Surely that's not a sin, is it? After all, aren't we free in Christ? Are we not free in Christ? Aren't we free to worship where we want to and when we want to? This freedom is a very funny thing, as you can imagine. Because when we are free in Christ, we are not free to do as we please. Understand that. We are not free to do as we please. We are free to do what God has called us to do. Amen. And that is to live in His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Period. Now, I know there are a lot of people that will take exception to that. They'll say, the Bible doesn't command us to worship. The Bible doesn't tell us that we have to come to church to worship. You're right. It does not. But I beg to differ with you a little. First of all, in the book of Hebrews, we are commanded and we are reminded not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Seems like there's an exception to the rule here. God is commanding us to be in church. God is commanding us to worship. God is commanding us to live in Christ. Amen. We draw strength. We gain encouragement. We need to be together. But there is another example of gathering together for worship, for preaching, for teaching, for giving of offerings, for times of fellowship that we also need to examine here. And that is simply the life of Christ. It is the life of Christ. Look at Jesus' life. The scripture makes it very plain that when we that there were several things that were important in Jesus' life. Many times they are identified thus as was his custom. In other words, Jesus would get up early in the morning and he would go pray. As was his custom. That's what he did. He didn't do it because he was asked to do it or forced to do it. He did it because he wanted to. Why do we follow in baptism? Why do we follow in believer's baptism? Is it so we can get a nice certificate? Show the others that, you know, we can be dunked in water? No. We do it because we want to do it. We follow in the commandments of God. But this was an important part of his life. The scripture tells us that Jesus went to the temple as was his custom. It was a part of his life. So if we as Christians are to emulate Christ, if we are to be Christians, Christ, Christ Christians, Christians, we are to be like Christ. It's in our name. If we are to behave the way that he behaved, if we are to do the things that he did, should we not also be going to church? Should we not also be gathering together for worship? Some may say that it's more important that we do good works after we are saved. We understand that good works is not the method of salvation. Paul told us in the first verse that mention of salvation is this. It means that salvation is what it is. It has been explained. It is not of good works. It is not by anything that you and I could ever do. 
We don't deserve it. But it's given freely when we believe on Jesus Christ. It is given to us as a gift. Amen. Because we don't deserve it. We deserve the wrath. Paul wanted to take time to warn us about the enemy that we face. Why do we think that is? I think it's because he knew it was going to be there every day. Do you not face the enemy every day? The enemy wants to get you right and early. You don't need to get out of bed. You don't need to go to the Lord in prayer. Just lay down. You need more sleep. That may be true. But that's where the enemy gets us. He appeals to the things that he knows that we know and love. And it becomes really, really easy when the enemy attacks us like that. It's really easy just to fall into it. So that's why Paul warns us. Because he knew that the enemy was going to be there every single day. It doesn't quit. He knew that everywhere we turn, that everywhere we travel, that in every decision that we make, that great enemy of ours will be there. That enemy will be there to challenge us. He'll be there to question us. He'll be there to make us wonder. And he'll be there to cause doubt. So in every decision, it is important for us to seek God and to seek his will and to be on the lookout for sin. But we have become so casual about sin that we don't even think about sin anymore. We look at the newspapers. We look at the news stories. What's the first four or five pages about? Sin. And we don't even recognize it half the time. I love to hear people pray. I, I just do. I like to hear what people have to say when they speak to God. And, and I know that I probably shouldn't listen to people when they pray. I should be praying along with them sometimes. But I guess that's one of the things that I should be praying is, Lord, allow me to listen to them pray and not scrutinize and judge their prayer. But some folks will say when they pray, if we have committed any sins that day, we need to ask for forgiveness. Well, what kind of request is that? Think about it. What kind of request is that? You know what they are saying. They are saying, I am so casual about sin in my life that I don't even know if I've committed it. But if I have hope that God's grace extends to cover those sins, that if I have God's grace to extend and cover me with that. God honors a prayer request like that. God will honor that. I don't believe that God honors a prayer request when you're not in covenant with him. But when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin in our life, and when we can confess that specific sin to God and ask God for forgiveness... And ask him to cleanse us. That's the kind of prayer God answers. That's the kind of prayer he's looking for. We have to quit being so casual about sin. We cannot expect the sinner, the lost person, to take us seriously if we refuse to do the same. That's why we realize that that enemy is going to be with us every single day. 
But then Paul gives us the exhortation here. Paul gives us the exhortation. And an exhortation is a word of encouragement or a word of correction. It's a thought, it's a sentence, or even a sermon causing us to focus and to look at ourselves. And Paul's response to the question is, God forbid. God forbid. He asks the question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And there are some who would teach that. There are some who continue to teach that the greater the sin the greater the forgiveness. And if that's so, then for us to glorify God and truly give God glory, then there should be great sin in our life. And that doesn't make any sense, does it? It troubles me. Sometimes when we see churches having testimony services, I don't know if you've ever attended when this happens, but when they have testimony services and some will stand up and recount the sins of their past almost as if they're enjoying it. Almost as if they're reliving it and almost as if they're saying, because I have such great sin, I should expect great grace. Those that were raised in church and those of you who have not committed the great sins, you can't know the measure of that grace because you haven't experienced the depravity of sin that I've seen or partaked in. That's what they're basically saying. And Paul is trying to keep people from thinking like this. Oh, if I sin greater, God will be glorified more when he forgives me. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul tells us in other places that we are not allowed to go out and sin intentionally. And that is exactly what we would be doing. Paul says here he uses the phrase, God forbid. We could correctly translate that phrase as, may it never be so. Would there ever come a time when a Christian would expect to glorify God by the sin in his life? Paul says, may it never be so. God forbid. Paul uses this phrase 10 times in the book of Romans and 14 times in all of his writings. And that is his highest and greatest effort to stop a bad thought. In other words, don't let it go any further. Stop it in its tracks. Don't give that sin flesh. Stop it immediately. May it never be so that a Christian would think that he could sin and the purpose of his sin would be that God would be glorified. That is a false teaching. And unfortunately, it is being taught in our churches today. It is. God made another arrangement so that he could be glorified. Instead of us thinking that we should sin so that grace may be abound, we as believers should confess so that grace may be abound. We should confess our sins before God that then he may pour out his blessings of grace. We shouldn't seek the recognition. We shouldn't say, oh, look at my sin. It was so bad. But God forgives me. And you, you don't know that grace because how could you? You haven't been in my shoes. Don't fall into that false teaching. Don't fall into that false teaching. 
We should confess our sins before God so that he can pour out his grace and blessings to us. Paul gives this answer. May it never be so. Then he asks this question. How should we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? How could we be a part of it if we are dead to sin? If we are dead to sin, we cannot be involved in sin. If our old life has ceased to exist, we cannot be involved in those former things. If we no longer live, we cannot enjoy the things that we live for. But this statement just seems to raise more questions. At least in my mind, it raises a lot of questions. But as Paul raises more questions, he gives us the explanation. He gives us the answer. Look at verse number three. Paul begins his explanation with another question. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Paul says, don't you know that when we were baptized into Christ, we were baptized into his death? I think people forget the significance of this. Which is why we need to talk about this before you go through something like that. Do you realize what you're taking upon yourself? Being a Christian is not a fad. It is not something you do. It is a responsibility that we take on. Something that we shouldn't take lightly. So we're baptized into his death. And first, that causes us to acknowledge the death of Jesus Christ. Paul is writing primarily to believers at Rome. Some of them would be Jews. And this is a very real possibility that many of those were at Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified. And that they were there that day when the Lord died. And that they saw him hanging on the cross. And they know firsthand that he died. So Paul is reminding them of the fact of the event of the death of Jesus Christ. But he asks them, don't you know that you were baptized into Jesus, were also baptized into his death? Don't you know that as a believer, you are a partaker of that very same death? Don't you recognize that once you accepted Christ as Lord, and he forgave you, and you were baptized into him? That his death on the cross became your death. Now this baptism is an interesting thing that Paul is talking about here. There are two types of baptism that refer to the baptism of Christ. One is a spiritual baptism. And one is an event that occurs to believers when they accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The New Testament teaches us that when we trust him, that when we quit trusting ourselves and that we quit trusting the world and when we place our faith in Jesus Christ and ask him to forgive us, and he does, and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness, at that point, the Holy Spirit baptizes us into Christ. Spiritually, we are immersed into Christ. We are out of an old environment, and we have been immersed into a new environment. 
The second baptism is a representative baptism, what we see as a physical baptism. That is when we fill our baptistry with water, we bring the one who has made a profession of faith in Christ, and we immerse them in the water and bring them back out. And the purpose of that is to show physically and externally what the Holy Spirit of God has already done for them spiritually. This is merely an act for us to help everyone recognize that here is a new believer. Guess what, old believers? I don't like to say that, but old believers, we have another project. We need to love on them. We need to care for them, just like we care for the lost. No one's exempt to this. I think that when Paul talks about this baptism in verse number 3, as many as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death, I don't think Paul is actually separating the two. I don't think he's actually separating the two. I feel in the New Testament teaches... And our practice should be that the physical baptism should immediately follow the spiritual baptism. When we study the book of Acts and when we study the New Testament, we see that when someone is saved immediately, they are taken and baptized. There is no waiting. There is no, hey, you want to do this next Sunday? What time do you want to do this? Is family going to be here? So on and so forth. We make plans for this. We glorify this. And that's okay. It's a wonderful thing. We should celebrate it. It's someone following in the act of Jesus Christ. We should celebrate that. But we also need to recognize the symbolism of this here. We need to recognize what it really means. Like I said, there was no waiting. There was no time to see if it took, even. Some people get baptized, and then we never see them again. So how do we know where they stand? So immediately... They go and testify to the world what has happened to them. When the blind man was healed, what did he do? Did he wait till next week to talk to somebody about it? He immediately went. He couldn't find enough people to tell. Remember when Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch were traveling along studying the book of Isaiah, and Philip explained that the scripture was a prophecy of Jesus Christ. And the eunuch became so convicted in his heart and he believed that Jesus was the Christ and he trusted Jesus. And he said, see, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? He knew when he knew. He didn't want to wait. He was baptized. He wanted to be baptized right then and there. And remember what Philip didn't say. He didn't say, The preacher needs to talk to you first. Philip didn't say, you need to meet with the deacons. He didn't say, the church needs to vote on it. He says, all you need to do is believe. All you need to do is believe. Let's consider the 16th chapter of the book of Acts. The scripture says that at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing praises to God. They weren't complaining. They weren't grumbling. They weren't griping. Brothers and sisters, we, they weren't even sleeping. Even though they probably wanted to. They weren't even sleeping. That's because they were worshiping God. 
And an angel of the Lord came and shook the jail with a great earthquake and broke free everyone's bonds and opened every cell door. But nobody wanted to leave. Why didn't they want to leave? Because they wanted to stay. Because they knew they were seeing a manifestation of God. They knew that the power of God and they knew that God would reveal himself and they wanted to see more. They wanted to see what else would happen. The jailer ran in and begged them, what must I do to be saved? When we live the example, others will take notice. Others will take notice. The simple response to that jailer was, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. He believed. He believed. And there was an actual physical demonstration of that belief. He gathered him up and took them to his home and he cleansed their wounds and they preached the gospel to him and his family too. And he said, friends, I'm convicted in my heart that when the father in the household is faithful to God, the household will follow. Young parents and old parents alike. When we live it, it is seen and they will live it too. They live by example. And we see that in the 16th chapter of the book of Acts. We see that in the life of the family that attended the revival during that time. Many people were saved, not because of what was said, not because of what was shown or what was done. It's because God entered into their life and they knew when they knew and they didn't want to wait. They followed the commandment. And the scripture says they were baptized. They didn't wait until the following Sunday. They didn't wait until the church had a business meeting. They didn't go around to the different churches to see which one they liked best and see which church would uh, suit their needs or had the best children's program or whether they had the best choir. They went out and were baptized immediately. So the testimony of Scripture is that the physical baptism, which is the demonstration to the world of what has already happened inside, immediately follows that spiritual baptism. It's just a representation of of what God has already done. It's the same in the sinner and the saint. God has already worked it. But our demonstration of that love comes when we follow in Christ's footsteps. Baptism itself is a picture of that. Verse number four, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. When the pastor or a member of the church takes a person and lowers him into the water, that is a picture of death. That is a picture of being buried with Christ. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. When that person is raised out of that water, that is a picture of them being raised in Christ. I love what that verse in Scripture says. That like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father. It is the glory of God the Father that raised Jesus Christ on that resurrection Sunday morning. It is the glory of God the Father that gave Jesus the power to rise up from that grave. 
And that glory, that act of resurrection, is a confirmation that what Jesus did on the cross was a rightful death. It was the right way to die. Scripture gives us eyewitness testimony. Even today, through the witness of our hearts, we know that He lives today. We know that He lives. The song says, you ask me how I know He lives? He lives within my heart. He lives within our hearts. And then Paul says that when we are raised, we should walk in the newness of life. There should be a dramatic change in our life. There should be a demonstration of change in our life. People who have known us should not recognize us. I believe that it's what happened to many of our families. Some of you have been estranged from family because of that decision you've made. I can attest to that. But we follow in Christ's footsteps anyway because we know the truth. Amen. This is a power that is greater than life. This is a power that is greater than death. This is a power that is greater than our petty problems that we face every day. You've heard the story of the old farmer who had his old flintlock rifle. It had reached a point where it wouldn't work anymore. It was old and had been passed down in the family, so he wanted to have it repaired. He took it to the gunsmith and asked him, what do you want me to do with it? The farmer told him, fix it, whatever it takes. The gunsmith said, well, it needs a new lock, a new stock, and a new barrel. That's the whole rifle. Lock, stock, and barrel means the whole thing. And listen, when we come to Christ, the old man comes to Christ's lock, stock, and barrel. And that is left with him. And when he saves us, we are a new lock, a new stock, and a new barrel. We are a whole new weapon for Christ. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be set aside for further use? No. That's not what it says. That the body of sin might be put up until we decide to come back to it later? No. That's not what it says. That the body of sin might be stored for a later date? No. It says that the body of sin might be destroyed. And the tense and the phrasing of it might be permanently destroyed and not available anymore. That henceforth we should not or could not or will not be able to serve sin. When we become a new body of Christ, we should no longer want to sin. And when we do, we know that guilt. That's by design. That's why when Christ left, the Holy Spirit came, took his place. This is by design. We no longer should have the desire to sin. And they are right. They, when they say, and we teach the eternal security of the believer, we are teaching that once I am saved, I can sin all I want to. No. The difference is when we are saved, we don't want to. We don't want to sin. We have a new nature. We don't need to sin. We don't have to sin. We don't want to sin. Paul says, 
For he that is dead is freed from sin. Have you been freed from your sin? When you die to sin, you die for the right reason. Die in Christ. Live for God. David, come. Lead us in our time of benediction. Remember, following service today, we will have a meeting, our quarterly business meeting. Uh, We'll commence that about five minutes afterwards so you can use the restroom and do what you need to do. And as we prepare for the new week ahead of us, may we truly surrender all we are before our Lord Jesus Christ as we surrender all. All to Jesus I surrender Lord, we thank you for our time here this morning. I pray as we leave these doors that we continue to live a life in your Son, Jesus Christ. That when we meet unbelievers and we meet those who are lost, that they will see something different in us and they will crave that. And we will have the Holy Spirit pulling upon them so that we can teach them, live with them, grow them up to know you. Lord, thank you in advance for those opportunities. I pray that we see them and then we minister to those who desperately need it so that we could further your kingdom. We thank you, Lord, and we love you. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great day in the Lord. The Bible says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.